Good morning. This is Dr. Daniel J. Guerra, and this is our Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is the 29th day of October 2023. Now, we're doing Biomedical Portrait 5, which entails a discussion of a bacterial infection that can occur in the oral cavity that results in an alteration of the biofilm of that domain being altered in such a way that bacteria that are normally in a consortium, an aggregated consortium as a biofilm, having a couple of different species, bacterial species, being specifically released and getting into circulation. Some of those bacteria can be very uh, pathogenic, therefore carry virulence factors. Now, these virulence factors include evasion of the immune response as well as activation of the immune response in specific locations so as to exhaust the inflammation system in such a way, particularly if the inflammation has been generated initially by innate immune cells like neutrophils, so that a complete exposure of the area of potential infection, which is just getting started, becomes highly inflammatory. What this will do is cause more tissue damage, host tissue damage, and that host tissue damage will allow the bacteria to center on a very specific tissue, and in this case, an organ, to settle in, evading that immune system that's in circulation, that's in the initial sites where those bacteria may have been uh, starting starting an infection, because now they're in circulation, remember, and settling in a place where there is very little immune response, or at least insufficient initially. And this can be in solid organs. Specifically, even in those solid organs, where there are always some kind of resident macrophages and also the ability for diapodesis and therefore entry of innate and acquired immune cells into that system, there can be the potential for an oncogenic event. The oncogenic event can be related to an immune response like that is because of the proliferation of cells to deal with the increase in a stress phenomena, such as the bacterial infection. Or the bacteria themselves can induce, not without having an ordinate valuation of the immune response, um, tissue replication. And if that tissue replication becomes unregulated once the, and if there's any mutation that has been generated or an epi mutation that's been generated or an epigenetic alteration of gene expression all those three are different phenomena that can control transcription as you uh, are aware of that can also lead to a direct oncogenic event and that's where we are we're in the pancreas now with an oral cavity bacteria that was uh, associated with uh, 
a biofilm and therefore relatively inert, becoming planktonic, getting into circulation, entering the pancreas where there is now a tumor. And that tumor has a microenvironment, and that's where this bacterium and then the immune cells are starting to create a new pathophysiological phenomena that research has shown is ultimately thwarted by controlling the activity of the neutrophils that came on the scene to deal with the bacterial infection. And that thwarting has to do with an alteration of metabolism. And I told you at the beginning of these lectures, it was going to be a glycolytic pathway enzyme. And I've also told you that it's going to be phosphofructokinase 1, which generates fructose 1,6-bisphosphate, which is a very significant and key intermediate in glycolysis. That particular enzyme, PFK1, as regulated by PFK2, generating fructose 2,6-bisphosphate, is in fact an enzyme that is allosterically regulated by mitochondrial factors, as well as uh, by a host of um, nucleotides and phosphorylation cascades, and then phosphatase, amelioration of those cascades, thus in tune with glycolytic flux through pyruvate or through lactate, or indeed up the pathway regulating the utilization of glucose 6-phosphate for the oxidative pentose phosphate shunt, or utilizing fructose 6-phosphate and the two three-carbon intermediates, glyceraldi-3-phosphate and dihydroxyacinone phosphate, as shuttling mechanisms to enter the oxidative pentose phosphate shunt at transketolase, transaldolase level and then having the potential to drive that metabolism to generate more NADPH. The NADPH ultimately is oxidized, and when it's oxidized, reactive oxygen is formed. Because remember that if NADPH is oxidized, the molecular oxygen will be reduced and partially reduced forms of molecular oxygen are reactive oxygen species, some of which have unpaired electrons, and therefore they are oxyradicals. And the oxyradicals can cause mutations and otherwise massive immune response, all of which can lead to a further um, enhancement of the oncogenic event. Okay, so... That was the summary where we are now. So you have to keep in mind we're going into deep detail of bacterial genetics, bacterial infection uh, mechanisms. We have to talk a little bit about pancreatic elastase versus neutrophil elastase. Those are, the, those are um, proteases which play a role here. Remember, the, the neutrophil is a um, granulocyte. So when it degranulates, it generates the production of proteins that are released. And one of those proteins is the neutrophil elastase. We already talked about 
proteins that are also generated transcriptionally in the neutrophil that alter transcription factors and histone proteins by altering arginine residues to citrulline residues, which will then confer a new activity of the way the histone controls nucleosomal roaming and function relative to transcription, as well as, because it's also occurring on certain transcription factors, the discrete and very specific nation transcription of unique transcripts. Okay? All of this is setting the stage. So let's proceed from where we were. Neutrophils, we've mentioned, have three main um, mechanisms to trap and to kill microorganisms. There's phagocytosis, which is the complete engulfment and digestion of the bacteria or bacteria fragments. There's degranulation, which I briefly just discussed with you. And then there is neutrophil extracellular traps, which will form nets of neutrophils with the help of elastase, which will then trap microorganisms and will also aggregate and coalesce other immune cells, thus enhancing the immune response. And these can include uh, T cells as well, right? Of course. Now, the neutrophil elastase, the NE, is a major mediator of the net formation, as I just alluded to. <clears throat> and indeed, that same enzyme, the neutrophil elastase, may play a role in some of the prodromal biochemical events leading to tumorigenesis. Now, if it's happening in pancreatic carcinoma, do you think it could be happening in other tumorigenesis where there would be association of innate immune cells, which is very common? And I would have to say a relatively unguarded affirmative. Now, it could be argued that intratumoral P. gingivalis, that's the bacterium we've been discussing, could precipitate the inflammation response in the pancreatic cancer via neutrophil-derived nets, right? Those are just conclusions derived directly from taking the veracity of the initial premises, leading to the evidence that we have already given you, and then coming up with what can be called um, verified and perhaps sound conclusions. Therefore, the argument, the biochemical argument, is at least settled at this level of discussion. Now, I want to um, talk about something called localized aggressive periodontitis, otherwise known, everything as an acronym, I'm sorry, LAP, L-A-P. Now, LAP is a rare form of inflammatory periodontal disease. It's characterized by a rapid rate of progression, dramatic alteration of attachment of bacteria and therefore bone loss on first molars and incisors, so very specific teeth. And then at the early onset uh, age of the of first molars and incisors, so in young children. Okay. So localized aggressive periodontitis is a very dangerous disease. I want you to keep that in mind, especially considering the periodontitis is a risk factor for later 
pancreatic cancer. Now, bacterial response to the environment is regulated by the two-component signal transduction system. These are known as TCSs. It's studied extensively in pathogens, particularly in environmental organisms. The goal of deciphering what are the signals that activate these transduction systems, so what genes are induced, that is at the level of transcription, and whether or not in the bacterium that are associated with this entire transduction system, if there is a specific regulon for those transcriptomes. Now, the oral bacterium that we've been talking about, Porphyromonas gingivalis, as well as another uh, potent, potentially pathogenic oral bacteria, Streptococcus mutans, use a two-component system. And the two-component system between those two bacteria are strain-specific, and indeed strain and species-specific. And they have evolved unique genetic expression patterns. Now, that, that shouldn't be any surprise. Now, more on that later. We're going to get more into that later. I just want to introduce some of the bacterial pathology now because that's important, okay? Now, aggressive periodontitis may affect primary dentition. Now, that's a condition previously classified as, and I've already told you that primary, but that's the lap that we mentioned. It was previously classified in, um, dental biology as prepubertal periodontitis, that's LPP, or permanent dentition, previously classified as localized juvenile periodontitis, that's LG, excuse me, LJP. Okay, this is more about, again, the oral molecular microbiology that I told you I was responsible for teaching for a couple of years. So, this is direct from my lecture notes. Now, clinical characteristics of localized aggressive periodontitis in those two dentitions, that is the prepubital and the juvenile, are actually very similar. There's an abundant calculus, and even though it's, it's abundant, it is still relatively infrequent. So because of that, upon inspection by the dentist, the tissues don't look inflamed. And bone loss patterns or the, with a vertical or U-shape are the only thing that really shows up clinically. But what happens is the disease in primary dentition tends to be more localized, as I said, to those molars, whereas the disease in permanent dentition can be detected solely at the first molars or solely at the incisors or both first molars and incisors. Now, proper, so, so you understand that <laughs> uh, clinical disease in dentistry is as complex as clinical disease in any other uh, medical field. Now, proper treatment of primary dentition requires early, accurate disease diagnosis. Limited research on the clinical treatment of primary dentition affected by that LAP. Okay, now again, I want you to keep in mind that's localized aggressive 
periodontitis. And most parents are not paying much attention to this. And most dentists, if they don't pick it up upon uh, just you know, a normal checkup at the, at the dentist's office, these diseases can lead to very dangerous diseases down the road for those young children. Okay? So in a study comparing the immune response of localized prepubertal periodontitis to chronic periodontitis. Some of these LPP patients, these are the localized prepubertal periodontitic patients, they exhibit a greater number of lymphocytes, particularly B cells, when compared to adults with periodontitis. Yet another study, though, showed that a severity of gingivitis may increase with age, possibly due to changes in plaque levels. Of course, bacterial species composition, as well as changes in hormones, that's endocrine, paracrine, and autocrine, the inflammatory response in general, and the eruption of teeth or indeed even exfoliation. But there's not much evidence that different levels of marginal inflammation affect the progression to periodontitis, at least in the older individuals. Okay. This is all, again, clinical for the, uh, the level of dentistry. Now, referring back to the infection court logistics, remember from last lecture that oral microbiota referred to a large collection of differential microbial communities whose development, maturation, and control, and turnover, I should say, are modulated by environmental conditions. The natural erosive sh uh, shedding, oral mucosa, and hard tooth surfaces formed by enamel and or by dentin present different receptors, protein receptors, and lipid receptors for microbial adhesion. Particularly biophysical conditions also play a major role here. By that, I mean temperature, um, level of oxygen tension, and of course, pH and hydration. Now, some of these are biochemical and biophysical conditions. You also have to consider the exposure to diverse host barrier and cellular immune responses. Obviously, this isn't happening without the, the host response. So dental biofilms contribute, if you haven't already um, either looked this up or garner this information from my last lecture, to a very robust, robust microbial consortium or community, which is organized in an extracellular matrix that provides a structural scaffold, which protects the interior biofilm consortia from what? From host and from any other exogenous antimicrobial agents. Now, what would be those exogenous antimicrobial? How about oral rinses and antibiotics? Yes. So the composition structure of the extracellular matrix of dental biofilms is dynamically turned over and modulated 
by the specific colonizing bacteria. And that's in response to the local biophysical conditions and the availability, of course, of nutrients such as carbon and nitrogen sources, which the bacteria will need and the biofilm mechanism will facilitate. There's also a biofilm repair response. And there's even a form of the biofilm's differentiation and development over time. And it's specific to the individual because of their, for example, eating habits. And it's related, of course, to the genetics. And if it's related to the genetics, it's going to be related to the epigenetics. Now, the biophysical and immunological challenges that affect the biofilm uh, on oral surfaces, as I said, are very site-specific. You have a three-dimensional space here. So you have microorganisms in both the supra and sub gingival plaque. Now, why is that important? Well, they're going to be exposed to variation in those abiotic factors, such as temperature, pH, redox potential. And, of course, if you think through this, the availability of carbon and nitrogen sources. And there'll also be blood and other tissue fluids that will become available to some of the microorganisms in the biofilm. Okay, And this is going to be coming from the serum, but also from saliva. So the supra-gingival biofilm adapts rapidly to fluctuations in nutrient availability. And that's going to be coming primarily, at least in the oral cavity, from saliva. You're going to have a, a larger shift in redox potential, and that means a larger shift in oxidative stress, including the production of raw species. And finally, one of the initial immune agents, which is uh, um, immunoglobulin A, serum immunoglobulin A, that's SIGA. Also, you're going to have other cells that are available that are present in whole saliva. And so those cells can include neutrophils and macrophages and basophils and eosinophils. <clears throat> you also have a serum-like gingival exudate, and that's called the gingival crevicular fluid. It's the GCF that bathes this whole system. Now, IgA, the serum IgA, immunoglobulin A, appears actually <laughs> two different molecular structures. Of course, monomeric, that's what you find in the serum, and the dimeric, and that's what's secreted. So serum IgA has a molecular mass of 160 kilodome, and a concentration is relatively high, about 3 milligram per ml. The secretory IgA has a molecular mass of about double, 385 kD, and a mean serum concentration which is much lower, about 0.05 milligram per ml. So IgA overall is the major antibody in secretions found in saliva, tears, colostrum, 
intestinal, genetic, uh, genital tract, and even in respiratory secretions. Okay. Uh, so you get the idea of where we're, where the, around mucous membranes, obviously, you're going to have higher concentrations. So IgA appears in the mucosa membranes as a dimer with the J chain uh, specifically. And that's what, that's once that is uh, set in place, secretion occurs. And that protects the epithelial surface of the digestive, respiratory, and genitourinary systems. IgAA possesses a secretory component that prevents its enzymatic digestion, and it activates the alternative pathway of activation of the complement system. Okay? Now, antibodies, which of course the better term is immunoglobulins, have two light chains and two heavy chains. In a light, heavy, heavy, light structural uh, arrangement, Heavy chains differ among classes. They have one FC region that mediates biological functions. For example, the binding capacity to oh, many of the cellular receptors. Then there's an FAB region, and that contains the antigen binding sites. So these chains get folded into regions, which we will call protein domains. And there are four or five of these domains in the heavy chain, depending on the class of the Ig. And there are two domains in the light chain. Now we have hypervariable regions, those are HRIs, excuse me, HRRs, and they contain the antigen binding site. So the hypervariable region the HRR contains antigen binding site. And there are three HRRs in the variable domain of each light and heavy chain. Now these will fold into regions that produce two antigen binding sites at the tip of each monomer of the protein. <coughs> so all the antibodies, all the immunoglobulins, Globulins exhibit one or more functions. So that includes activation of the complement system, opsonization of microbes to be easily phagocytized, and the prevention of attachment of the microbes to micro, micro uh, excuse me, mucosal surfaces. Finally, there's also a neutralization of toxins and even of viruses and viral particles. Okay? So, multiple functions here. You have this whole complement opsonization of microbes. You have phagocytosis. And then that results in, okay, so the, that's the bifunctional nature, a prevention of attachment to mucosal services, and as I just said, neutralization. Okay? So immunoglobulins, immunoglobulins should interact with receptors to fulfill various functions, obviously. And mainly, they're expressed on what are known as mononuclear cells. These include mast cells, neutrophils, natural killer cells of a CD8-positive uh, lineage, 
and of course the cinephils. Again, binding to any of these receptors on any of those cells is essential for the immunoglobulin functions that I just presented to you. And that binding promotes phagocytosis of bacteria, so that's the opsonization, mast cell degranulation, we've already been discussing, and that's seen too in what's known as type 1 hypersensitivity or allergic response. It also will result in, okay, this, this activation, killing of tumors, and an induction of antigen-presenting cells, including macrophages and dendritic cells, which then will present the antigens to circulating T lymphocytes for the generation of the complete cellular and then humoral immune response. Okay, so immunoglobulins play a very, very, very significant role here. Now remember <laughs> that two significant pathogenic members of the dental biofilm are S mutans and P. gingivalis. And they are consistently observed in dysbiotic processes associated with dental caries and the disease we're talking about, periodontal diseases. So P. gingivalis expresses gingipane cysteine proteases that work to, I mentioned at the beginning of lecture, subvert immune function and at the same time promote dysbiosis, giving rise to claims that P. gingivalis is what's known as not only a keystone in the biofilm,